Well, welcome to week four in the Gospel of Mark. We've covered only 13 verses in the last three weeks, but we're already getting a good feel for Mark's writing style. Without the nativity story or any real fanfare, Mark just jumped in with laser focus on the good news of Jesus. So starting with an ordinary hero, John the Baptist, who announced the coming of Jesus and welcomed him as the leader that the whole world's been waiting for. And then Jesus is the son of God who comes down as the son of man. And today he's getting his ministry started. So if you haven't already, grab your Bible, grab your device, open to Mark chapter one. And we're going to start right now with just verse 14. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now true to Mark's urgent and succinct style, he's moving his story right along. So he's saying, John's been imprisoned, his work is finished. Jesus comes to Galilee and his work begins. And so really quickly, let's talk some geography. Most of us don't tend to think about it much, but geography really helps ground us in the context of what we're reading because real people were living and working and playing and discovering Jesus at a certain time and in certain places. And one of the ways Mark organizes his gospel story is around geography. You're gonna see this reflected on the Mark web page. If you haven't checked that out, please do. But for roughly the first eight chapters of his book, the setting is Galilee, and that's the northern part of Judea. In the middle of Mark, from the end of chapter eight through chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples, they're on the road south, and they've got a particular destination in sight. And so at the end of chapter 10, they arrive there in Jerusalem. And then Mark takes the remaining six chapters of his book to tell the story of Jesus' final week. But back here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he comes to Galilee. Now, this is the region west of the Sea of Galilee. Today, that's known as Lake Tiberias or Lake Kinneret. And the lake sits actually below sea level, but the area surrounding it is quite mountainous. And in the first century, there were a lot of small towns and villages, and many of them were located right near the lake. So... That gives us some sort of sense of where we're at in the story. And Jesus launches his ministry here in this region with these words. Look at verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And this sentence right here, it says it all. And we're going to break it into three sections. So first, he says, the time is fulfilled. There are two different Greek words that are used to talk about time. One of those words is chronos, and that refers to the time of day or the specific hour. We get the word chronological from this Greek word. On the other hand, the word that Jesus uses here is kairos, and this refers to the right time, the fitting season, the proper time. I really love how the New Living Translation of this verse says it because it, it highlights for us its meaning. It says, the time promised by God has come at last. And so something about this moment right here, right now is momentous. This Kairos moment is gonna leave a mark on Kronos time, literally, right? Our Western calendars mark time by this man. So let's think about it this way. If God's story was a play, this is the pivotal moment when the story rises to its climax. It's the beginning of the final act. Everything that came before this moment was leading here. And I think it's worth our time that we're going to take a quick history break before we get to the climax, climax of this story. So let's make sure we understand where the story began. So where did it begin? 
Well, God's story begins in Genesis 1 and 2. We could call it Act 1 or Chapter 1. God creates the world and into a perfect garden, he caps off his beautiful creation with man and woman. And in that garden, there's perfect peace and unity and wholeness of body, mind, and soul. There's perfect peace with the earth and with one another and with God. And and God is King and Lord of all. And then the story moves to Act 2 or Chapter 2. And here we see, well, the perfect story go off the rails. So beginning in Genesis 3 and then continuing through the whole Old Testament, men and women, they question their creator. They sin because maybe his ways aren't best. Maybe maybe we can tell a better story. In fact, let's just be our own kings. But like a toddler who runs around yelling, I do it, or an amateur trying to recreate a masterpiece, the results of human effort came nowhere close to the perfection that God had made. And we see this human failure and brokenness all around us today. For the people way back then and for us today, we're left with this sure sense that something is not right. And we feel that maybe something or someone could make it better. But at no point in history have we humans ever hit on it apart from God. Tim Keller once wrote, This longing is embedded in the legends of many cultures. And though the stories are all different, they all have a similar theme. A true king will come back slay the dragon, kiss us, and wake us out of our sleep of death. Rescue us from imprisonment in the tower. Lead us back into the dance. A true king will come back to put everything right and renew the entire world. And so throughout the centuries over which the Old Testament unfolds, God, time and again, he promises people, I would be with you. And then he would defend them. And then he would one day send a Messiah and a savior, a true and better king to rescue them from their enemies and from themselves. So God sent prophets throughout their history with warnings concerning their sin, but also with hope and promise. They were prophets who were bringing good news. But here, it had been almost 400 years since they had any good news. That's a long time of waiting. And then John the Baptist comes along, and this time of waiting is nearly over because right here, right now, at this Kairos moment, Jesus makes a bold claim. The time is fulfilled. God is fulfilling every promise, and the good news of the kingdom of God is this, that Jesus is that true king. Paul, he was a Pharisee who had studied the Old Testament prophets, and he understood the power of this Kairos moment as he reflected on it years later. He wrote about it in a couple of letters to the churches. In Romans, he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In Galatians, he wrote, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And that takes us to the second part of Jesus' declaration. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, Jesus talked about the kingdom 135 times in the Gospels. The kingdom of God, it was prophesied, it was foretold, it was predicted, and yet it came in an unexpected, upside-down and disorienting way. It was revolutionary, yes, and yet it wasn't political enough. It wasn't immediate enough. It wasn't tangible enough. And Jesus didn't look like or act like any king that they knew. And he didn't come from a prominent family and he didn't have any power and he wasn't wealthy. But despite all of this, the king and the kingdom had come and this was going to change the world. Well, what does it all mean? Well, I'd love for us to listen to Paul's words to the church in Ephesus as he paints the picture of God's redemptive work through Jesus as the climax of this story. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God broke into history. Why? Because he wanted to unite all things to him. What was broken and divided since Genesis 3, God's redeeming and restoring one life at a time in a Garden of Eden-like wholeness. It's a kingdom united in Christ. And so the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And now the third phrase is repent and believe in the gospel. Now this word gospel, it means good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's news that brings joy. It's actually a common word in ancient times because good news was often in the form of a royal announcement, generally used to describe some history-making news. This wasn't the news, it was just sort of shared over the loudspeaker every morning at your high school, if you know what I mean. For example, there's a Roman inscription for the birth and coronation of Caesar that reads, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. That sounds a lot like how Mark opened up his story, right? Verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The ancient historian Josephus reported of General Vespasian's becoming empire, he, emperor. He wrote, every city celebrated the good news and offered sacrifices on his behalf. So Jesus's taking a vocabulary word from the language of a pagan culture to announce the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't coming in with a new set of rule books. He's not coming in with a new set of stone tablets. What he's doing is breaking into Kronos time at the Kairos moment with good news. Tim Keller highlights this unique message. He says, the essence of other religions is advice, but Christianity is essentially good news. And other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It's joyful news. Now, notice how Jesus immediately calls for a response to this joyful news. He says, repent and believe. And essentially, he's calling the people to humble themselves, to lay down the false narratives that have governed their lives, to turn away from lesser stories about life and death and freedom. He's calling them to turn from everything that they think they know and to believe that he is bringing good news, better news, the best news. Jesus is going to announce this same thing using a different method in Luke's story. So, in Luke, the rabbi Jesus, he's invited to read at a synagogue. And so he stands up, he takes up the scroll of Isaiah, and it says that he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, the good news has arrived. 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' opening words here say it all. They are a bold announcement that this is a Kairos time. This is the kingdom of God and this is the gospel. He's saying, look at me. I am the one you have been waiting for. Listen to me. I am about to turn the world upside down. So don't hesitate. Repent and believe. Believe that all of history, the entirety of God's story has been pointing to this very moment. Believe that your salvation has come from the Lord. Now imagine, imagine you're a fisherman. Imagine you're a mom. Imagine you're a tax collector. Imagine you're lame or blind or leprous or sick. Imagine you're just an average guy trying to scrape together enough to feed your family this week. Imagine you have no hope except the mercy of strangers as you beg in the streets. Imagine you've sold out to the Roman oppressors by working for them. Imagine your child's dying and there's nothing you can do and you hear this guy in the street. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And you hear this guy on the lake shore And he's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And you hear a guy on the road near your field and he's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Could this really be? Could this really be the good news that we need? Could this really be good news for the poor and broken and needy? Could this really be good news for sinners and drunkards and addicts? Could this really be good news for me? We're gonna look at the first stories in Mark, some of the earliest words and actions of Jesus. And we're gonna see Jesus bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and he brings it to ordinary places filled with ordinary people and he does so in extraordinary ways. And so our big idea today is that ordinary life with Jesus is extraordinary. So first we see Jesus bringing the good news of the kingdom to ordinary places. We've already set the scene in Galilee for the first half of Mark. We know Jesus is going to spend a lot of time here. He's going to recruit all of his disciples here. But not because this region had some big-name university or world-class training facility. Galilee was not a hotbed for the arts. It wasn't the location of any brilliant think tank. Galilee was just ordinary. Jesus himself was pretty ordinary up to this point, right? He's born in a stable. He lived in a tiny village of no importance. He was a carpenter by trade. And now he's, he's beginning his ministry, not at the seat of power in Jerusalem or Rome, but among the small towns of a distant region that few cared about. The savior of the world comes with earth shattering good news to the most ordinary of places. But he's going to shake up these ordinary towns and villages with extraordinary words and miracle, miracles. And we're going to see all along the way that some people, well, some get extraordinarily annoyed with him. Others are going to go to great lengths to find him and to follow him. And to some of those, he's going to call them out from their ordinary place, place, but to others, he's going to look them in the eye and he's going to command them to stay right where you are. But around every bed in the road, every village, his mission is going to be to bring extraordinary news to the ordinary places because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and you need to repent and believe in the gospel. Every town and village needs to hear it's time. See it happening all around you. Repent and believe. And at the end of his time on earth, all over Galilee, in ordinary homes, on ordinary streets, near ordinary places of work, people, well, they will have heard and they will see that ordinary life with Jesus is extraordinary. In the coming weeks, we're going to read how he opens their eyes to see the reality of God's kingdom beyond the ordinary. 
So Jesus brings the kingdom to ordinary places, and those places are filled with ordinary people. And so verses 16 to 20, Jesus calls his first followers. It says, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus would have encountered many fishing boats and many fishermen. This is one of the primary industries in the region. And so what began as an ordinary day is going to end in an extraordinary way for two sets of brothers. Four fishermen called to become fishers of men. Because the time is now, guys. The kingdom is here. Jesus is breaking into the ordinary places and he's calling these men out of their ordinary lives in order to become the priority in their lives. Come, follow me, Jesus calls. And Simon and Andrew walk away from their job and James and John walk away from their father and friends. He's calling them out from ordinary to something extraordinary, out from what they had always known and expected. He's calling them to something, well, well, kind of crazy, right? I mean, Jesus, he's a, he's a teacher, he's a rabbi. And he's even turning that upside down. You see, rabbis did not pursue students. Students pursued rabbis. And even if they did go recruiting, a rabbi certainly never would have gone to the shore looking for fishermen to be a student. Rabbis wanted to teach the best and the brightest. <laughs> These guys were not that. And notice from his very first words to his very first followers, Jesus is turning the world upside down. He's not in places of power. He's not looking for power players. Rather, one ordinary life at a time, Jesus is calling people to something greater than themselves, greater than their dreams, greater than their expectations. Now, in all our culture, I mean, we can hardly fathom that anything is greater than my fully realized self. In our highly individualized society of, like, live your truth, it sounds crazy that these guys would give up everything to follow this radical teacher around. It's probably a cult, right? Jesus is just a radical. I mean, he's a fanatic. Yeah, I mean, fanatically humble and compassionate and generous, radically committed to God the Father and to loving every single person and to sacrificing himself for the sake of the world. But these guys didn't know that yet. All James and John and Andrew and Simon knew was that this Jesus guy had interrupted their ordinary day with an extraordinary call, and they chose to immediately obey. And day by day, they're going to discover that ordinary life with Jesus is extraordinary. Because in these coming chapters, as the story unfolds, he's going to open their eyes to see the extraordinary kingdom reality beyond their ordinary lives. So Jesus brings the kingdom to ordinary places filled with ordinary people, and he does so in extraordinary ways. Now, Mark does this thing as he moves into these first stories of Jesus' ministry. He starts with a big announcement about the time and the kingdom and the call to repent and believe. And then he shows Jesus gathering up his crew. And then he moves into a narrative to narratives that give evidence of the big announcement. So he's not just some crazy guy with a cardboard sign yelling about the end of the world. He's the guy with the power and authority to bring God's kingdom to earth. And his power and authority, they're not just to tell what needs to be done. It's the power, control, and authority to do what needs to be done. Here, Mark gives us the very first evidences of Jesus' authority. So we're going to look at three aspects of his authority. 
First, Jesus has the authority to call out. We already talked about this, right? He finds the four and he says, come and follow me. He's shifting priority away from home and work to himself. Tim Keller says, if you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if my career thrives, if my health is good, if my family is together, then the thing that's on the other side of that if is your real master, your real goal. But Jesus will not be a means to an end. He will not be used. If he calls you to follow him, he must be the goal. And so when Jesus calls, our lives turn. When Jesus calls, it's no longer about me and my life. It becomes about my life centered on his life, enveloped in his story. His authority to call is the authority to restructure your life's priorities and purposes. Second, Jesus has the authority to teach. Now, it was normal for rabbis to teach by quoting someone else. Their authority as a rabbi was delegated or derived from someone else's authority, a more seasoned rabbi or the words of the prophets. Jesus, however, he taught with an authority that was derived from himself. So looking at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So a few minutes ago, we just read Luke 4, and Jesus stood up to teach in the synagogue as a rabbi would do, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And then he made the bold, authoritative claim to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. No rabbi, no scribe in their right mind is going to do such a thing. So who does this guy think he is? Well, he knows who he is. He's the Lord God. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And John's gospel, John's gospel speaks of Jesus' authority to teach in these terms. John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is that word. He is the author of the story. He's the authority of God's voice come to earth in the flesh. He is the word incarnate. And so Jesus had the authority to call ordinary men to himself, and he had the authority to teach. And here we also see that he has the authority to heal. And so let's look at two stories of healing that Mark shares with us, starting verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The authority of Jesus... It's not merely sp spiritual, but physical. And the miracles, they all testify to this fact. And we're going to encounter more miracles as we work through Mark. Jesus, John, he calls miracles signs because they point to and they testify to the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. 
Listen to how John defines miracles. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what were Jesus' words in verse 15? Oh yes, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For some, seeing is part of believing. And every miracle, every healing, every casting out of a demon, every returning someone who is broken to wholeness, it's a visible sign of the authority of Jesus to heal hearts and minds, souls and bodies. Guys, ordinary life with Jesus is extraordinary. Jesus is opening their ears to hear God's voice. He's opening their eyes to see an extraordinary reality beyond their pain, beyond, beyond their ordinary lives, beyond their, ordi- beyond their ordinary days. Jesus brings the good news of God's kingdom to ordinary places filled with ordinary people, and he does so in extraordinary ways. And so let me finish today with a story. My grandpa, Charlie, he was an ordinary man in an ordinary town working an ordinary job until he heard Jesus say, come, follow me. And in extraordinary ways, Jesus opened his eyes to the good news of God's kingdom Jesus broke his addiction to alcohol. Jesus changed his relationships with his family. Jesus moved him from carpentry to artistry. In fact, he followed Jesus' call. He quit his job, traveled to fairs and festivals, creating masterpieces with a log and a chainsaw and sharing the good news that life with Jesus is extraordinary. That following Jesus brings light to darkness and it brings freedom from addiction. It brings restoration to relationships. My grandpa was one ordinary man, but he was following an extraordinary king. And covered in chainsaw dust, he shared the good news of King Jesus with hundreds of people. But his story doesn't end there, just like the story doesn't end here in Mark chapter 1 for the disciples. Because see, sometimes we have no idea where King Jesus will lead us. For sure, the disciples didn't have a clue where this was going. I mean, they had visions of a revolution. They had visions of a king taking his rightful throne and the overthrow of tyranny. But as this ordinary day that we just read about ended in an extraordinary way, and they watched the last of many people finally leave Simon's house, healed and whole, they couldn't imagine that the story would have anything but a happy ending. Now at age 49, just seven years after my grandfather chose to repent and believe the gospel, he, was, he received a diagnosis and he died shortly thereafter. Following Jesus didn't bring him physical healing in this life, but following Jesus, it led him all the way home to the Father. And you know what? There are going to be many, many who join him there because every ordinary day of those seven years was an opportunity for him to share the good news of an extraordinary king. The lines at the funeral home were out the door and down the street. I was 12 years old. I will never forget. I will never forget that an ordinary life with Jesus is extraordinary. And so here you sit today. And you're an ordinary person in an ordinary time and place. But when you repent and believe that the good news of Jesus is the best news, that the kingdom of God is better than any kingdom on this earth, that the story of God has your name written in it, then you open your heart and you open your mind wide open to King Jesus, who's going to work in and through you in extraordinary ways. And so our next step today is just this. I want to again point us to the four themes in Mark's gospel. Each one has a discipleship question associated with it. We're going to change those up from time to time, but the discipleship prompt right now under Ordinary Heroes just asks, what's my next small step of obedience today? Because every ordinary today of your ordinary life has the potential for the extraordinary work of Jesus. In your ordinary neighborhood, 
at your ordinary workplace, in your ordinary home, in all those places, in all those spaces, all of those ordinary people in your life, they want to know and they need to know that there's more to this life, that there's more beyond pain and brokenness, that there's something to live for beyond what they can see. And to all of those people, Jesus comes with this extraordinary news that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. No ordinary life will ever be the same when Jesus says, come, follow me. So what small step of obedience will you take today?